chapter 1. Verse 7 is where we'll be at this morning, where we'll start at. You know, I've been thinking this past week, has there ever been a more appropriate time to be in the book of Revelation? As I look at everything that's going on around the nation, around the world, um, you know, if anything, this pandemic has showed us how easily Fear controls actions. Um, how from world leaders down to our local leaders, how they fall in step with those influencers who push the fear narrative. You know, I got to looking at some statistics. I did a little research as I was preparing for this message, uh, looking at the Kung Fu flu, better known as the coronavirus. I just like Kung Fu flu. It's just, man, that's it's awesome, the Kung Fu flu. Um, since November, when the first case of the coronavirus came on the scene, 13,000 people worldwide um, have died. Over 13,000 people worldwide have died uh, from the coronavirus. 13,000. Now remember that number. 13,000 people have died worldwide. As of February of this year, 16,000 people have died in just the United States from the flu. 13,000 worldwide have died from the corona. 16,000 in just the United States has died from the flu. There have been 24,000 cases of the Kung Fu flu in the U.S. 24,000 cases. There has been a total of 285 deaths. That's to date. That was, the, that was just from a couple of days ago. 285 deaths. So that's 24,000 cases of this flu or this virus. And 29 million people have been influenced or have, been, have experienced the flu. 29 million people in the United States have dealt with the flu this year. 24,000 have dealt with the coronavirus. 280,000 have been hospitalized from the flu. And as I mentioned, 16,000 have died which include 105 children. Do you know how many children have died from the coronavirus? One. In all of the world, one 14-year-old child died from the coronavirus. That doesn't mean they're not getting sick. Some of them have gotten sick, some of them have gotten very sick, and some of them have even been hospitalized. But only one child in the whole, uni or in the whole world has died, and that was a child in China, 14 years old. And this is the thing. 
And, and this is the thing that I've noticed as, I, as I've been on social media, as I've been watching uh, different speeches, as, I've, as, as I was watching some of the speeches, I was reading the, the comments that was going on underneath, not really listening to the speech that was being put out there. But this is the thing, that anyone who does not fall in step with the guideline is railed upon. They're called careless. They're called the problem. Churches have closed their doors. They've canceled their services. And mind you, that's their choice. That's between them and God. I'm not judging them. That's what they felt was best for their church. But those churches who have decided to remain open, and there are a few, we're not the only ones that are open. I was talking to a young lady the other day. Her dad's a pastor uh, over on the east side of the state, and he said he wasn't shutting the doors for no virus. He was not going to allow this to to dictate when the doors were open. Uh, But any church that holds their door open or allows the doors to be open um, are looked down upon. Um. The pastors are accused of not caring for their flock. Um, they even go so far as that to say that if somebody is to get sick in their congregation and if somebody is to die in their congregation because of this coronavirus, then they should be held liable. They should be held accountable. <laughs> That's what I've been seeing. That's what I've been watching. And as I said, I I don't take this lightly. If I felt that there was a real crisis, if I felt that there was some type of virus that, you know, everybody that get it was dying, that would be something different. But from what I've seen, just looking statistically, we have more of a chance of dying from the flu than we do of this coronavirus. And yet that hasn't slowed us down. The flu, we're used to the flu. The flu has been around forever, and so we don't even think about people dying from the flu. And yet we know, and every year I tell you, every year when the flu season, and this is the thing, the flu season only lasts for about three weeks. That's about all the distance of the flu season. When it starts, it's going to last about three weeks, and then it's over with. And we don't think anything about it. And you think about how many people die in that amount of time, and we don't think nothing about it. And I tell you every year, if you're sick, stay home. Make sure that you're washing your hands. Make sure when you cough or sneeze, cover your mouth. You know, that's common sense stuff that we should be doing anyway. But especially when the flu comes around. And like I said, if I thought there was a real concern about somebody from here dying from this, then we would think differently about this. But statistically, I'm just not seeing why there's so much fear going on with all of this it's crazy the nonsense that i'm seeing um now with that thought in mind i want you to imagine a time that we're going to find in the book of revelation as we continue this study a time where there will be absolute world chaos i believe that this will be a time that that the the rapture of the church takes place. I mean, talk about a pandemic. Imagine millions and millions of people gone worldwide. Stock markets crash, looting, chaos in the streets. Fear will grip the whole world. And then a very well-spoken, 
strong man will come before the cameras and he will offer hope and he will offer peace. And people will cling to his every word. They will listen to everything he has to say. He will bring peace to the Middle East, something that leaders have been trying to do for centuries. He will bring on a one-world government. He will bring on a universal currency known as the mark. And how easily people will fall into that. I mean, you look at how people are acting with a virus. And how easily they are manipulated. And how easily they are drawn in to the fear tactics. And anyone who doesn't get on board 100% will be ridiculed, persecuted, and eventually starved to death or killed. And people will have no sympathy for them whatsoever. And if you don't think that people are that easily manipulated, I challenge you to go down today and buy you some toilet paper at Walmart. Or eggs. Or milk. Or Lysol. Or baby wipes. Or dog food. If you think people are not easily manipulated, it's crazy the way people act. And imagine when there's a real crisis. Imagine when when there is a, a world pandemic. And this is just a reminder. As I'm talking about the this book is not about the Antichrist. This book is about Jesus Christ. This is a revelation of Jesus Christ. And more specifically, it's a revelation of the second coming of Jesus Christ. So let me ask you this. How important is the second coming? Let's ask pastors. How important? There is an organization out there called the World Council of Churches. They held a conference in Eviston, Illinois. And pastors from all over the world, leaders from churches all over the world, came to this seminar or came to this gathering. And they were given a questionnaire. And one of the questions that they were asked was, how important is the second coming? Only 10% of the pastors believed that the second coming was significant. 10% of the leaders of the church felt that the second coming was significant to the Christian walk or to the Christian life. Now, that's church pastors. What about those that are under them? What would that percentage be like? Just those who attend church who are not leaders in the church, who are not pastors. If it's only 10% for pastors, then what would the, the, those inside of the church look like? Would it be 5%? 3%? 2%? What would that number be if it's only 10% for pastors? So now we've asked the pastors what they think. So now let's ask Scripture what it thinks about the importance of the second coming. It has been estimated that one-fifth of Scripture is prophecy. And one-third of that one-fifth speaks of the second coming of Christ. There are 660 general prophecies 
There are 333 that are about Christ. 109 speak of his first coming. 224 speak of his second coming. Of the 46 Old Testament prophets, less than 10 of them speak of his first coming. And 36 of them speak of his second coming. There are 1,500 Old Testament passages that in some way refer to Jesus' second coming. One out of every 25 verses in the New Testament talks about the second coming. So, every time the Bible mentions the first coming, it mentions the second coming eight times. For every one time it mentions the first coming, it mentions the second coming eight times. So let me ask you, how important is the second coming? Revelations chapter 1, verse 7. Behold, he cometh with clouds, and every eye shall see him, and they also which pierced him, and all kindred of the earth shall wail because of him. Even so, amen. I am Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the ending, saith the Lord, which is and which was and which is to come, the Almighty. So this, these scriptures right here sum up the whole letter of Revelation. It sums it up right there. Behold, he cometh. That sums up Revelation. If you had to sum that up in one verse, there it is. Behold, he cometh. That's what the whole book is about, the coming of Jesus Christ. And listen, I believe that there are many good reasons to believe that Jesus is coming back the second time. First off, God the Father prophesied it. Many things that did not happen during the first coming of Jesus Christ was promised would happen. Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6 and 7. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given. And the government will be on his shoulders. And he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the greatness of his government and peace, there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from the time on, from that time on and forever. The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. That did not happen with his first coming. Jeremiah 23, verses 5 through 8. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch, and he shall reign as king and deal wisely, and shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. In his days Judah will be saved, and Israel will dwell securely. And this is the name by which he will be called. The Lord is our righteousness. That has not happened. That did not happen with his first coming. It will happen in his second coming. 
So, first off, because the Lord God, the Father, has prophesied, we know that he must come back again. 21 times Jesus himself prophesied of his second coming. John 14 Chapter 2 and 3, or or chapter 14, verse 2 and 3. My father's house has many rooms. If it were not so, would I have not told you that I am going to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and I will take you to be with me that you also may be where I am. And then in Luke, we have a parable. That speaks of his second coming. Luke 19 11 says, While they were listening to this, he went on to tell them a parable because he was near Jerusalem. And the people thought that the kingdom of God was going to appear at once. He said, A man of noble birth went to a distant country to have himself appointed king and then to return. So he called ten of his servants and he gave them ten minas. Put this money to work, he said, until I come back. But his subjects hated him and sent a delegation after him to say, we don't want this man to be our king. He was was made king forever and returned home. Then he sent for the servants to whom he had given the money in order to find out what they had gained with it. The first one came and said, sir, your mina has earned ten more. Well done, my good servant, his master replied, because you have been trustworthy in very little matter, Take charge of ten cities. The second came and said, Sir, your mina has earned five more. His master answered, You take charge of five cities. And then another servant came and said, Sir, here is your mina. I have kept it laid away in a piece of cloth. I was afraid of you because you are a hard man. You take out what you did not put in, and you reap what you did not sow. And his master replied, I will judge you by your own words, you wicked servant. You knew, did you, that I am a hard man taking out what I did not put in and reaping what I did not sow? Why then didn't you put my money on in deposit so that when I came back, I could have collected with it interest? Then he said to those standing by, take his mina away from him and give it to the one who has ten minas. Sir, they said, he already has ten. He replied, I tell you that to everyone who has more will be given. But as for the one who has nothing, even that which they will have will be taken away. But those enemies of mine who did not want me to be king over them, bring them here and kill them in front of me. Jesus says, listen, we've all been given the gospel. What are you doing with it? What are you doing with it? Are you putting it aside? Are you ignoring it? He said, we're going to be judged according to what we know and what has been given to us. And so Jesus has promised that he will come again a second time. The Holy Spirit testifies of his second coming. Every time a writer was inspired to talk about his second coming, he was inspired by the Holy Spirit. And then his promise to the church says that he will come back. Revelations 3.10 says this, Because you have kept my word about patient endurance, 
I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world to try those who dwell on earth. His promise to the church says he's coming back. His promise to Israel says that he's coming back. Romans chapter 11 verse 1 and 2 says, The remnant of Israel, I ask then, did God reject his people? By no means. I am an Israelite myself, a descendant of Abraham from the tribe of Benjamin. God did not reject his people whom he foreknew. God still has a plan for Israel. He has not rejected Israel. God promised Israel salvation, peace, prosperity, security, and a kingdom. And that didn't happen during his first time. He has promised judgment to the unbelieving nations, which has not happened yet. Psalms 2 says, Why are the nations in an uproar and the people devising a vain thing? The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed saying, Let us tear their fetters apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. Then he will speak to them in his anger and he will terrify them in his fury, saying, But as for me, I have established my king upon Zion, my holy mountain. I will surely tell the decree of the Lord, he said. He said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will surely give the nations as your inheritance and the very ends of the earth as your possessions. You shall break them with a rod of iron. You shall shatter them like earthenware. Now, therefore, O kings, show discernment. Take warning, O judges of the earth. Worship the Lord with reverence and rejoice with trembling. Do homage to the Son, that he not become angry, and you perish in the way. For his wrath may soon be kindled. How blessed are all who take refuge in him. So God's promise of judgment upon the earth says he will return again and then there's Christ's humiliation his humiliation demands that there be a second coming it can't end this way listen to what he said to the religious leaders in Matthew chapter 26 But Jesus remained silent. The high priest said to him, I charge you under oath by the living God. Tell us if you are the Messiah, the Son of God. And Jesus said, you have said so. But I say to all of you, from now on, you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One and coming on the clouds of heaven. He said, this will not be the last time you see me. I stand before you now as a lamb, but when I come back, I will be a lion. You will see me standing at the right hand of the Father. This is not the end. And the priests began to tear his robe. They began to spit upon him and to strike him in the face and to pluck at his beard. It can't end that way. The last time that these people saw Jesus Christ cannot be the way it ends. 
He says, Behold, he is coming. The coming one. This is a messianic term. The coming one. Every Jew would understand when you talk about the coming one. John the Baptist used this very term in Matthew eleven two 2 and 3. When John, who was in prison, heard about the deeds of the Messiah, he sent his disciples to ask him, Are you the one who is to come? That's the term. Are you the coming one? Or should we expect someone else? John the Baptist said, Are you the one we've been waiting for? Are you the coming one? Are you the Messiah? Or should we be looking for someone else? Now the word behold here is a call to attention. He says, listen up. Listen up. He is coming. I used to have a teacher when I was in school that when she would be teaching you, if, uh, if she come across something that she was teaching that you knew she knew was going to be on the test, she would give you a signal. She'd be teaching and she'd go, you knew you better start taking notes then. You better listen up. Or she'd stomp her foot. She had three signals. If she did any one of those threes, you knew you better listen to what she just said and write it down because she's trying to get your attention. That's what John is doing. Listen up. He's coming. He is coming. He is coming. Now, this is an interesting way of putting this. It literally means he is on his way. It literally means when it says he is coming, he is on his way. So, what he's saying is the process has started. Have you ever called someone, asked them where you are? Where are you at? You call them and say, where are you at? And they're like, we're on our way. What they really mean is we're getting the coats on the kids. We're getting the bags in the car. We're getting the kids put into their seats. We're on our way. We're coming. We're on our way. That's what he's saying. Jesus is on his way. The process has started. Jesus is putting his coat on. He's about to come out the door. He said he's on his way. Understand that. He is on his way. That's what John's saying. Now, this is it. With clouds. You know, many times as, as I've thought about Jesus coming on the clouds, I, I just always had this picture of him floating down on this little old fluffy cloud coming down out of the sky. But you know what? I don't believe that's what it's talking about. I don't believe that's what it's talking about. Because if you look throughout the Bible and how many times clouds are used to describe God, or used as a representation of God. When, when they were in the desert and they went to the temple, you had the cloud which represented God. At Mount Sinai, there was the cloud that came down upon as they were given the Ten Commandments, and the people were scared. They were afraid of what was going on upon the mountain because of the clouds and of the lightning and everything that was going up on the mountainside. I believe It could be speaking of earthly clouds, but I believe it's something more than that. I believe that the clouds represent the glory of Jehovah. 
I believe it represents the glory of God that will surround him. Daniel 7.13 says this. As my vision continued that night, I saw someone like a son of man coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the ancient one and was led into his presence. More specifically, I believe it's speaking of his Shekinah glory. The blazing light that that surrounds Jehovah. Can you imagine? I mean, you think about this is what this is what I imagine. Okay, the, the Revelation talks about the sun going out, the moon going out, and the stars going out, and it's going to be completely pitch black. You ain't never seen black like this black. And all of a sudden, Jesus Christ in all of His glory steps out of heaven in His Shekinah glory, and every eye shall see Him. It will light up the heavens. Think about the brightness in this complete darkness of his Shekinah glory as he steps out and the angels and the the, the innumerable number of angels that will come out with him in their lesser glory. And then with them, the saints who come out all dressed in white. What a vision. Oh my goodness. What a vision. What a sight that will be. And he says, and every eye shall see. Is there any? I wonder why every eye will see. Every human being that is left upon the earth will see this vision. Will see him stepping out of glory in all of his glory. And specifically he says that those who pierced him will see. Now that's speaking of the Jews. Yes, it was the Romans that put the the nails in him, but they were just a tool in the hands of the Jews. Zechariah 12.10 says this, And I will pour on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and supplication, and then they will look on me whom they have pierced. Yes, they will mourn for him as one who mourns for his only son, and grieve for him as one who grieves for a firstborn. That's this. This is what Zechariah is talking about. This very event right here, when he steps out and the Jew looks up and they realize who he is, and they realize what they have done, and they will mourn the mourning of, of repentance. Now understand, by this time, when Jesus steps out, there's already going to be 144,000 of them that have been converted. 12,000 from each tribe. 144,000 witnesses from the Jewish nation who are out and who are preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ. And the rest of them who will see this and the rest of them who recognize him as he steps out on his glory will fall and will begin to worship and realize what they have done. Now listen, this isn't going to be like the rapture. It isn't going to be in the twinkling of an eye. It isn't going to be everybody changed in that moment. There is going to be a time span. There will be time for the Jews to repent at this time. How long? I'm not sure. However long it takes. But it will be enough time. Listen to Romans chapter 11, verse 25 through 29. 
lest you be wise in your own sight, I do not want to be want you to be unaware of this mystery, brothers. A partial hardening has come upon Israel. Okay? A partial hardening has come upon Israel. Until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. Until all of those that God has called from the Gentile nation has come in. And in this way, all Israel will be saved as it is written. Did you hear that? And in this way, all Israel will be saved as it is written. The deliverer will come from Zion. He will banish ungodliness from Jacob. And this will be my covenant with them. Then I take away their sins. As regard to the gospel, they are enemies for your sake. But as regards election, they are beloved for the sake of the forefathers. For the gifts and the callings of God are irrevocable. Remember, this is what they've been waiting for. Whether they realize it or not, what they have been waiting for is the second coming. They didn't recognize the first, but they will recognize the second one. And then he goes on to say that all the tribes of the earth will see him. This refers to the unbelieving Gentiles that are left. All those that are left below. It says they will wail. This word means that they will cut themselves. The word means to cut yourself. Have you ever known anybody that cut themselves because of how much pain they were in, because of the suffering they went through? I, I've known some cutters. I don't understand cutting. I don't like to be cut at all. I don't even like to be put out and be cut on. So I don't understand the cutting idea. But there are people who are in such pain and so much tor- turmoil in their life that they will actually cut themselves. And this is, this is nothing new. This is what pagans have done for centuries. Uh, we saw this practice in the book of 1 Kings when the prophets of Baal began to cry out to Baal and, and as time went on and they began to cry out more and more and more and, 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 and Baal was not answering their prayers so they began to cut themselves, the Bible says, until the blood flowed. This is what it says about the, the Gentiles who see Christ step out. They're not gonna, it's not a, a repentance, a morning of repentance. This is a, a morning of, of basically being caught. This isn't that they're falling upon their knees. As a matter of fact, Revelation teaches us that they will curse God during this time. They will recognize who he is, and yet they will curse him. Instead of a prayer of repentance, they will curse him it is a morning of fear and despair but not one of repentance and then john says even so amen now this is cool even so, amen. See, th- what John done right there is he just got a little excited. He got just a little Pentecost in him. He says, "Woo!" He said this. He says, even so, amen. In other words, he said, yes! This is the way it's going to happen. I'm telling you it's going to happen this way. You see, he gave us all a high five. A belly bump. 
this is it. This is what's going to happen. He is using the strongest words of affirmation in both the Greek and the Hebrew here. In the Greek, even so. Even so, the strongest words of affirmation. And in the Hebrew, amen. The strongest words. He used a double whammy. Even so, amen. Yes, yes, yes. I carried it. I got a little excited with John there for a minute. And now look at verse 8 with me. I am Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the ending, saith the Lord, which is and which was and which was to come, the Almighty. And God says, everything that John just told you, I put my stamp of approval on. I am He. Jehovah now puts his stamp on his approval of verse 7 of what John just said. I am the Alpha and the Omega. That's from A to Z in the English language. I am A to Z. What do you find in A to Z? All knowledge is found inside of the alphabet. What, a, what an incredible way I mean, if you try to give me any letters or any words outside of the alphabet, they mean absolutely nothing, right? They mean nothing. All knowledge is found in the alphabet. How many letters in the alphabet? Boy, you guys have been out of school a long time. 26 letters in the alphabet. That's what we're talking about. Yes, sir, Frank. I don't know the Hebrew one, so I wasn't expecting anybody to know the Hebrew alphabet, Frank. But thank you. There's 26 letters inside of the English alphabet. I'll be very specific. How many words can you make out of the English alphabet? Who knows? Exactly. Every day there's a new word that comes out. It's innumerable. There's no way. All knowledge is found within inside of the English or inside of the alphabet. In this case, it's the alpha and the omega, which is the Greek alphabet. I am everything contained within this. He, this is what he's saying. He says, I am omniscient. I know everything. I know it all. I have all knowledge. You can understand that everything that John has put down, and I have put my stamp of approval on it because I know it all. And he really does. I know a lot of know-it-alls, and they don't know nothing. But God says, I am omniscient i understand i am the a to z so he is all-knowing he said who is who was and who is to come this is omnipresent i am everywhere at all time i was i am and i will be i am omnipresent he says i am everywhere at all time And then he says, I am the Almighty. He says, I am omnipotent. I am all-powerful. It does no good to be all-knowing. It does no good to be all-present if you're not all-powerful to control everything else. He said, I'm all-knowing, I'm ever-present, and I'm all-powerful. And I will make these things come to pass. I will make sure that these things come to pass. 
So, how many of you know the story of Robin Hood? We've all heard the story of Robin Hood, right? You know that's loosely based upon a true story. Loosely based upon a true, it's English history about King Richard I. What happened was King Richard I had went out and, and he was out doing his kingly duties. He was out fighting and, and his brother, little John, kind of took advantage of the situation and he made the situation bad, real bad. That's why we have the story of Robin Hood who was robbing from the rich and giving to the poor was because little John had come in and made things really bad inside of the kingdom. Well, this is the thing. When King Richard came back, King Richard was known as the Lionheart. He was the Lionhearted. Everybody knew that he was a man of valor. King Richard was a strong king. And when he came back and found his kingdom in the mess that it was, he came back and he took his throne back without no resistance whatsoever. And the people were so happy and so proud when that their king had come back. They began to ring the bells in the city, ring them over and over and over. And they began to say, the lion is back. The lion is back. The lion is back. Long live the king. And can I tell you something? One greater than King Richard is coming back. Would you stand to your feet? Even so, amen. Father, we love you. Oh, my goodness. How exciting it is, Father, to read your word. How exciting it is to see the revelation of Jesus Christ. How exciting it is to imagine, God, what is to come. And how exciting it is to know that, God, you are a God that will make it happen. And, God, we so long for the coming of Jesus Christ. Even so, Lord, amen. Make it come. Make it happen, Father. And, God, may we all be excited about the King coming back. And now, Father, as we conclude this service, God, I pray your protective hand upon your people. God, as they go out of this house, that your protective hand would be upon them. God, that they would not be touched nor affected by this virus. God, you can and you will protect your people. You will protect your church. And God, we thank you for that. You are the Alpha, the Omega. You are omnipresent, God. You are the Almighty. Keep us safe. Bring us all back once again, Father, as we open your word one more time and bless your people as they go. And we ask all these things in Jesus' very precious name. Amen. God bless you. Have a great day.